0: All right, back to our series. Um, We we were there last week, actually, in Easter. Back in our series, Alpha and Omega, we are looking at the new covenant. Now, last week, we jumped ahead. We almost took it out of order, but it was because, hey, it's Easter. Let's look at the covenant partner. Let's look at the one who died and rose and actually established and inaugurated this covenant. Today, we're going to step back into the Old Testament, but not to look at an Old Testament covenant, but to see the new covenant, the one we saw Established or inaugurated last week, um, to see it prophesied, to see it, it, it presented as a promise of what God is going to do. So, so the reality is that Jesus didn't just narrowly escape and just, and just barely win, uh, escaping death by, by the resurrection. It, it's not as if that darkness almost won. This was always part of the plan. God was always going to do this work. 700 years before this work ever started, there was a prophecy from Isaiah that, that hey, listen up. In, in fact, Isaiah 55, uh, 3, he says, incline your ear, come to me here that, you, that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. He is going to make a covenant, an everlasting covenant, an eternal covenant with David. But David's long gone. David's dead and in the ground. He can't possibly be speaking about David. He's thinking forward to someone who, was going to, who, who David typified. Ezekiel prophesies of the coming covenant in which God will give his people a new heart, replacing their old heart. Even Moses, we're going to look at these verses later, even Moses pointed forward to the covenant all the way back before Israel had ever gone into the promised land. God promised through Moses that there would come a time where he would circumcise their hearts. Circumcise their hearts, the hearts of their offspring. And that as a result, they would actually be able to love him the way he had commanded them to love him. Maybe the most well-known of all of the prophecies, it's the one quoted at greatest length in the New Testament. It's found in Jeremiah 31. That's where we're going to be studying today. But it's promising a day that would come in which God would cut a new covenant. Cut a new covenant. Not, not reaffirm, not, not, a, not establish an old one, not renew an old one. He is going to cut. That's the language that means he's going to make a new covenant. Not, not re, reaffirm an old one. He's going to do something new. And that's what we're going to study today. We're going to see the prophecy of what Jesus had come to fulfill Uh, laid out. Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to begin, just for context's sake, we're going to begin reading in verse 27. We'll read through the end of the chapter, but our focus is really going to be verses 31 through 37, to, to see this new covenant explained and expressed. So let's read it, beginning in verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow and destroy and to bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge." And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars for, for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus, says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Gereb, and then out to, shall then turn to Goa, The, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook of Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. Let's pray. Father, help us. Let us not lean into our own understanding let us learn and hear from your word but more than just gaining intellectual insight and doctrinal position father by your spirit i pray that you'd move upon us today that you would that that, that you would circumcise our that you would cut away the old dead flesh that surrounds our hearts that you would make us new father that you would renew us and draw us close that that we would know you and that as a result we'd find great confidence and peace and hope Just being your people i pray this today in jesus name amen now jeremiah is a book filled with lots of prophetic promises of judgment if you've ever read it it's pretty heavy it's dark there's lots of lots of proclamations of judgment, we, we see that kind of expressed in the opening verses that I read to you, that, that God had been watching over them to pluck them up, to destroy them, to tear them down. And in fact, what we find is that when Jeremiah was commissioned of God, when he was called of God to speak on God's behalf, that's what God said to him. This is what I'm going to have you do in Je- Jeremiah 1.10. He says, see, I have set you this day over the nations and over kingdoms. To pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. That's your job, Isaiah. Preach my word and you bring judgment. But that wasn't it by itself. As much as he had the responsibility to to preach and profess and prophesy judgment and the tearing down, he was also called, it says, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The very thing that God is doing in this, in, in this passage is showing us that there's coming a time. As much judgment as there is, as much reason and right judgment as it could be, there's coming a time that I will be done with the tearing down and the destroying and the overthrowing, and I will plant. I will watch over them to plant them, to establish them. It's hard to imagine when you read a book like Jeremiah, but sprinkled all the way through it. Is, these sprinklings of light and hope to the point that we come to jeremiah chapter 30 and 31 which is often called by by people the book of consolation because it's the place where he begins to turn and begin to to speak about the the good thing that god is going to do in spite of what israel deserves so so jeremiah definitely goes out and he's preaching judgment but he is also making it known that God has a work to do that is hopeful. See, we don't we don't want to get the wrong idea here. We don't we don't want to we don't we don't want to spin this the wrong way. That that Israel right was just this. It was, was just this innocent kingdom, this innocent people that God came upon, and he found them and, and they did the best they could, but you know God just wasn't you couldn't please god, and so god 's going to bring judgment no Israel was a faithless people, generation after generation after generation we've studied that we 've seen it from the from the moment that that God began to enter into covenant with people we 've seen person after person after person fail and he comes to this nation who he has delivered out of Egypt and he comes to them and he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And within days, within weeks, <laughs> 40 days, in, in the time that Moses is on the mountain, they have, they have gone from saying, yes, we agree we will be in this covenant with you to give us a cow so we can worship. Right? Build us a statue. Give us a God to worship because we don't know what happened to Moses and that God that Spoke to us in power that we were so afraid of before. And then the following generation, after generation, after generation, failure, after failure, after failure. What's shocking about this book is not the judgment. What's shocking about the prophecy that there is any hope? Judgment was exactly what they had coming. You'll be blessed if you obey me, cursed if you disobey. But here we are in the book of Jeremiah getting glimmers of hope, the promise of a new covenant, a covenant that God was going to establish. God, the creator and the covenant maker, promised a new covenant through which he would make his covenant people new. God, the creator and covenant maker, promised a new covenant through which he would make his covenant people new. Now, here's the issue that's set before them. Really not a lot different than us. But we have Israel, the northern kingdom. We have Judah, the southern kingdom. They're they're, they're a divided people. And set before them, and the prophecy of Jeremiah is, well, we can... We we, we can double down on what God had said before. We can cling to that old way. We can hang on to those old things and think that in some way we're finally going to be the generation that's going to figure it out. and It's going to get it right and going to keep the covenant. Or while we wrestle to do these things imperfectly, we can look with great hope to what God has promised he will do, to what God has promised he will accomplish. Not because of us, but in spite of us. Not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. There's actually a lot of parallels between them and us. And, and I think of this in terms of us living here in the U.S., but it's truly that worldwide. There's a reality in which we, we aren't Israel. No one else has ever been Israel in the world. There's only one, been one nation in which God has entered into a covenant with people. But but as I think in terms of the U.S., I've been mean, there have been ways in which many people in, in in our history have sought to set the U.S. out as a Christian nation, as a as, as a nation set aside and 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 holy unto God. And now everywhere we look, is there a lot of signs of that still? So we were we were in our church history class. That one of the one of the lessons this week was around. The Great Awakening and God's movement of His Spirit, and they were talking about the depravity of of the people of that time. It was like 1700. He pointed out the sexual immorality, the the that. um, Oh, there was an advertisement going out that you could get your. Come, get your your drink, your alcohol, and maybe your neighbor's wife or something like that. It's like, that's the world, that's the 1700s, all right? We're thinking back on this time of Puritans and, and this time where people had it together and this godly people back then. No. But I couldn't help but think that's where we're at. I mean, we're arguing over what's moral and immoral when it comes to sexuality. We're arguing over whether gender is a defined thing according to God or Or just how I feel, we're arguing over whether children get to chart their own course or are called to submit to their parents. We're we're arguing over whether the church has a place in this culture at all anymore and what should we do. We're, we're, We're arguing over things that would demonstrate that, I don't think it ever was, but if America ever was, this holy nation... Doesn't seem to be any more. So what are we going to cling to? What are we going to hold on to? Are we going to cling to ourselves? Or are we going to double down on what I feel good about, what I feel comfortable with, what I say is good and right? Or are we going to double down on kings and kingdoms, governments and governors? Or are we going to find our hope And what God has promised he would do. I stand here every week, an imperfect man, with torn, split motives. In almost, well, not in almost, in everything I do. Even standing here, I have a desire for your approval. Running in the back of my mind, I want to do everything I can to be liked by you. I don't want to push too hard. Although sometimes I do push pretty hard, and I know that. But I can tell you from the depths of who I am because of who God has made me to be, that is not who we will lead this church to be. Our hope is in our Savior and in the new covenant that he has established and the promises that come with that. If your hope's in something else, I don't want to run you off. I just want you to see what we're leading you to. God has promised this Covenant. It's a different covenant. It's a distinct covenant. It's not it's not the same as the covenant before. This is not a renewal, not an affirmation. he, he uses the language of initiating, of of starting, of of beginning something. Cut a covenant. Karit karat barit. Cut a covenant. Over and over and over. This has been shown. And and, and I could show you the exhaustive study that Stephen Willem and Peter Gentry have done to demonstrate that that when the language is used, cut a covenant, it's an initiating work. And when, uh, um, I'm forgetting the other word now, but when it's established or make a covenant, not make, when it's established a covenant, translated in the English, it's a reaffirmation. It might be a renewal, but, but most likely it's a reaffirmation of a previous covenant. God is going to make a new covenant. And Jeremiah actually says that, new covenant covenant. We saw last week that Jesus picked up on that language and used that term. This is my blood for a new covenant. God is doing something that's distinct and different than what was before. Now, as he speaks, you can see that there's some continuity. It's not a totally new work. It's not as if there's no connection to all that he's done in the world. It's not as as, as if all of a sudden that that everything else has laid waste and now I'm going to do something new. I've given up on all of that. No, what he's showing and what he's demonstrating is that there is a continuity because there's going to be a way in which it's connected to and through and with the people that were of the old covenant. But there's a clear discontinuity to it. It's absolutely different. There's different promises, a different nature to it. So although there's continuity, there is clear discontinuity. This is a new covenant. And what's he covenanting to? What's God promising in this new covenant? This isn't readily apparent. It's not like it's stated out plainly. But first and foremost, I'd say that he's going to unite his people. It's a covenant to unite his people. So David's the king, right? So Saul is, is chosen by the people. They reject God and they choose Saul as the king. And Saul displaces the king. He's removed as the king by God because of his, his um, rebellion and a lack of holiness and a lack of representation and reflection of God. So God chooses David, anoints David king, and enters into a covenant with David. And he says, hey, your son, I'm going to establish your son forever. And and Solomon's born and takes the throne. And it appears at first that that, oh man, this might be it. Solomon's a good king. God made him wise. God made him wealthy. God gave him great influence in the world. But as Solomon got old, all these wives that he had given himself to, suddenly start to have a strong influence on his life, and he begins to build temples for idolatry. He begins to build places of worship for his wives to attend, and he begins to worship with them. And he turns his back on God. So 1 Kings 11, you can read about it. He goes and and does all of this stuff, and God says, you know what, I'm taking the kingdom from you. I'm not going to do it while you're alive because of my servant David, because of my commitment to your father. I'm not going to take it from you while you're alive, but I'm going to take it from you, Because of my servant David, I'm also going to leave you one tribe. So he leaves him Judah and really Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin were together in the south, Israel's in the north. And so when God comes and prophesies through the prophet Jeremiah, these two kingdoms are now two different kingdoms. And someone that wasn't the son of Solomon, Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, takes Solomon's place in the northern kingdom of Israel, and a line of kings begin to extend. And then David's, Solomon's son down in the south, ends up getting to rule over, and and the reality is, is both of these are going to end one day. We get to see them, well, get to see them, that's unfortunate language. We have to watch them fail, and fumble, and fall, and eventually there is no king sitting on the throne in Israel. But David is, or not David, but God has said, look, I am going to do this work. I'm going to make a, a covenant with Israel and Judah. They're not going to be two kingdoms. They're not going to be two nations. They're not going to be separate. I'm going to bring them back together. Now, we don't know exactly at this point what that's going to look like. He's not giving them details. He's just saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to make this covenant with them. Looking back from the New Testament, we can see that work. But, but right now, in this prophecy, all we know is that there is a uniting covenant a covenant of unity it's going to bring these two kingdoms back together so then next we see god promised a new covenant that would renew the heart of his people renew the heart of his people look at it, verse 33 he says behold the days are coming declares the lord i'll make a new covenant it's going to be distinct not like the covenant that i made with the fathers right it's going to be different for this is the covenant that i will make but the house of israel for those days or it after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it, write it on their hearts. He is going to do something that's internal. This is one of the differences, a big distinction. So when, when God gives the law before, he gives it through the prophet Moses, and, and, or, or his, his prophet Moses. Moses carries it down the mountain on two stone tablets. And he carried it down the mountain, and he got to the base of the mountain. And he sees them worshiping this false idol, this this other, this golden calf. And what does he do with those tablets? Throws them on the ground and it breaks. It's almost symbolic of the breaking of the covenant. Then Moses prays and God God relents and and, and God calls him back up and he says, but you're going to have to cut the the stones and you're going to have to write the words. And so Moses does that work and he carries those tablets up on the mountain. He writes out all the words, the 10 words on the tablets. And now they have these, these laws on tablets of stone. God says, that's not going to be this covenant. I'm going to put this law within them. Here, here's what he's going to do. He's going to get at the weakness of the old covenant. I don't want you to hear me say that the covenant was flawed. What I want you to hear me say is that because the people's hearts were so desperately wicked, an external law couldn't be followed. It was limited, not by the perfection of the law, but based on the heart of the people, So Jeremiah is saying, hey, God is saying that I'm going to do this work that's going to renew these hearts. I'm going to write this law on their hearts because that's the only way they will change. In fact, he had noted it earlier in Jeremiah 13, 23. He asked the question, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? I mean, what's the answer to that question? Can a leopard change his spots? No. Can an Ethiopian change his skin? No then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. So, so his suggestion is if, a, if that can happen, if an Ethiopian can change the color of his skin or a leopard can change the, the shape of his spots, then, then you who are good can do what you want to do. You can do good even though you actually do evil. That's ludicrous, he's saying. That's, it's as it's, it's a, it's a silly to think that a depraved person can do good as, as a leopard can change its spot. That is ludicrous. It's absurd. But here we go. God's going to do a work. God's going to change a heart. Because God recognizes that just by informing someone of the law doesn't make them law-abiders. You can be told the law, but that doesn't make you immediately in a law-abider. It actually just sets you up to be a person who breaks the law knowing you broke the law. How many of you sped on your way to church this morning? Yep, I did too. I know the law, but it doesn't make me a law-abider right? We, we, we break the law all the time. We, we, we know the law, but we break it ah, as long as I'm not caught. It's only wrong if I got caught. No, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of laws that we don't keep all the time. Sometimes it's out of ignorance, but often it's even knowing the law, we still break it. The only chance Israel had, and for that matter, anyone ever has, is to have some internal transformation take, some take, take place, some renewal take place. Here, Jeremiah is referring to God doing it in their heart. and Ezekiel prophesies much the same way. Ezekiel 36, 26-27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Even Moses Deuteronomy 36, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. There's no way. Moses knows they are going to disobey. They are going to fail. But there is coming a time where God will circumcise their hearts. He will do a work within their hearts that will enable them to obey. Ezekiel prophesies the same thing. Your heart of flesh is is disobedient it's sinful at the very core of who you are your will your motives your desires it's sinful the only way that you'll ever be be able to obey is for God to take that heart of flesh or that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh to to renew it to to put his spirit within us that causes us that empowers us that gives us an ability to live in obedience to be careful to obey his rules The problem isn't the weakness of the law. The problem is the weakness of our hearts to be law abiders. The condition of our heart is always going to be the weakness of that previous agreement. God says this one's going to be different. This covenant, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. And, And as a result, everything else about this covenant is going to have a new twist. God Promises a new covenant to be known, to know and be known by His people. Back back to the text, verses thirty-three and thirty-four. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel; of those days declares the Lord, I will put My law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be My people. That's the exact same thing He'd said in the previous in, in the previous covenant. Now the the difference is is that they, these are a people with transformed hearts. I will be their God because I've transformed their hearts that they will devote themselves to me, that they will entrust themselves to me, that they will live in obedience to me. They will be my people. This balance is a reality. They're going to they're know me and I'm going to know them. For they shall know me. Right? That's what this, this is what this is all about. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know know me. I will be their God. They will be my people. It's a relational component. This is not just a contract that God is sitting off in a distance and saying, hey, pay me the dues. Let me earn some interest off of you. These covenants are relationally binding agreements. They're agreements that tie us together. And every time God enters into a covenant, he's not just coming and saying, I want you to be my servants. I want you to be my people. And I want to belong to you as your God. Philip Reichen, picking up on this point, he, he says, whenever God makes a covenant with his people, what he's really giving them is himself. And we often think God's given us work to do or laws to follow. Or, no, he's given us himself. Thus, the primary blessing of the new covenant is friendship and fellowship with the triune God. This is the crown and goal of the whole process of religion, namely union and communion with God so often we get this wrong we think i've got to work my way into a relationship i've got to clean myself up i've got to do this thing that enables me to walk in and have relationship with god and god's saying you can't do it it's been tried i gave people a law and you see what they did they failed 40 days out they failed and the next generation 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 failed And here we sit 2,000 years later. Do we think we're going to be different? Do we think we're finally going to be the generation that figures it out and is able to obey our way into His presence and into His acceptance, into relationship, into union and communion with Him? What level of arrogance and foolishness would it take for us to think that here we're going to do it? We are finally going to achieve the Impossible dream. We're going to obey our way into earning a relationship with God. It's never going to happen. This this relational aspect was part of every covenant. But without dealing with the heart issue first, no one, no one would be able to, to come into this so here's the thing is that in this covenant that Israel had before inside the nation, there were people. There were people that were his. It's no doubt there were people that were his. But it was based on this covenant that they had already been being circumcised of the heart. And they were being already drawn into relationship with him. It was not based upon the law covenant. It was not based upon the, the, the covenant that God had made with them at Sinai. It was based on what God was going to do through his son, Jesus Christ. So if you can look back in the span of time, you have the nation of Israel. That's a covenant people. Here's this covenant people. And inside of that people, alongside those who were not his by this new covenant, were these that were being circumcised in the heart that were truly Israel based on what God was going to do. All the way back, reaching back, they were looking forward in time, anticipating what God was going to do. Hearing the word of Moses and saying, one day, God's going to do a work, and I'm entrusting myself to that work. One day, God's going to do this work. Standing right next to a Pharisee who said, "Up, oh, look at what I've done for you, God. Maybe they weren't called Pharisees all the way back then. But people who stood self-righteously before God. God says, in this new covenant, it's not going to be such a thing. It's not going to be mixed in that way. It's not going to be a, a, a covenant that in, in which one person knows me and one person doesn't. It's going to be a covenant in which everyone in the covenant knows me. I will be their God and they will be my people. There is no mixing. And we know we're not there quite yet. We know the parable of the, the chaff and wheat that inside of, of the church in this age, we still have weeds next to the wheat. We have chaff next to the wheat. We have the enemy sowing seeds and putting, putting people in place inside of local congregations. But God knows his covenant People, and one day he will call those covenant people out to be with him for And So, because of that, we don't have to teach and coerce people with teaching. So, one of the one I, th- I, th- I think now I want to be careful here because I don't want to just I don't want to just point out a bunch of things that I just disagree with or think are, are wrong. But but I think there's a flaw in the way that we tend to do apologetics today. I think we do apologetics today as, as an argument that we're trying to convince someone of some truth. So the word apologetics actually comes from Peter's, le- Peter's letter to the church to always be ready to give an apologia, an apology, a reason for the hope that you have. So, apologetics is oftentimes used, though, as a, just a reason to have an argument and to try to prove somebody that I'm right and you're wrong and to undermine any of their. And I got no problem reasoning with people. I got no problem discussing things with people. I'm not suggesting that. I'm, I'm just suggesting that sometimes we use this idea of apologetics to beat people and think that we can win an argument against them and coerce them into coming into the kingdom. That's never going to happen. We can go out using apologetics, using teaching, using preaching, telling our children about Jesus, telling our, telling our, having our classes that inform, but the reality of the fruit that comes from that is the renewal of the heart in a person that leads them to know God. And so as we teach, we're not trying to coerce people into the kingdom, we're teaching looking for the fruit of the kingdom to begin to be revealed to us. Not a work we did by our teaching, but a work that God has done that's internal and begins to show itself through the external. We think that we can save someone, that we can make them covenant people, that we can draw them in and, and make them believe something. You can't. But you can teach and be used of God to do that cut, to do that circumcision work, to do that, so that the fruit of his renewal begins to be shown and the softness of that heart begins to be revealed. And they know God. And because they know God, they begin to entrust themselves to God. They begin to devote themselves to God's glory, and they begin to obey his commands. So rather than always having to just teach people and try to drag people in, we get to teach people and celebrate that people begin to believe and stand together in this beautiful covenant. God promised a new covenant to unite his people, to renew the hearts of his people, to, to, to know and be known by his people. And, and he promised this new covenant to forgive and forget the sin of his people. Now, the old covenant didn't overlook sin. It's not that it ignored sin. In fact, there's a whole list of sacrifices, a whole list of days that are supposed to be celebrated to deal with the reality of sin. A whole list of of, of ceremony and processes in, in which priests would have to atone themselves. They'd have to have to dedicate and cleanse altars, and they'd have to take specific animals. I, I don't know how many animals were killed. I, I've seen estimates of fifteen thousand animals a day in, in the time when Israel was living according to to, to try to uh, 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 atone for sin, to try to do something about their sin. It's obvious it wasn't working. It wasn't lasting because tomorrow when they woke up, there's 15,000 more animals that got to be killed to deal with the reality of their sin. But it's not that the old covenant ignored sin. It was just unable to deal with the sin. It was unable to satisfy God's right and just wrath against sin. God says, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant in which I will forgive sin and I will forget Sin. Now, God knows everything. God doesn't have to learn anything. It's not like there's things that come in and out. He just knows everything. He's omniscient. That's the terminology. He knows the beginning and the end. He knows everything in between. He knows. So The idea of him forgetting something obviously is not literal, but it is highly important that we recognize this because it demonstrates just how complete the forgiveness is. When he's Forgiven your sin, he will never define you in light of it again. So you just pick one. What's a way in which you've sinned? Sexual immorality, desire for approval from people, drunkenness. I mean, the list could go on. If you've heard my story, I mean I I was seeking I was the person who was trying to make up new ways to sin, right? Like that was who I was. And according to the law, living under the old covenant, I would be atoning for that every day until the day I die. It would define me. It would define you. But God says, I'm going to forgive you. I'm not going to ignore the importance of your sin. I'm not going to ignore the, the heights of my holiness and the depths of your sinfulness. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to provide an atonement that is final and complete. The precious blood of my son. And it's going to be so complete that when I look at you, you will not be... Failure, sinful, depraved, unacceptable, unworthy. you'll be washed, white and clean as snow. Your sin will be as separate it will be separated you from you as far as the East is from the West. And I dare you to try to measure that. You'll never start going west once you start heading east. And you'll never start going east once you start heading west. There's not a tape measure long enough to measure that distance. It is finished, our Savior said. In this new covenant, there's no other death necessary. It is finished. God, the creator and covenant maker, promised a covenant through which he would make his covenant people new. New hearts, new people gathered together, new new relationship with him that we would know him and be known by him. (laughs) And new, cleansed, white as snow. And here we are, set at the same place as Israel, as Judah, what are we going to count on? God's promise plus God's work equals our true hope. This is what I would encourage you to count on. Every statement that God has made in this prophecy is His doing. Tell me what He asked us to do. Tell me what He said we were going to have to do. Tell me what was going to be necessary for us to do. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. And who's doing it? The Lord. He's declaring, I'm the one going to do this work. This is His work. This is His promise. And we can entrust ourselves to it. We can in- completely give ourselves to it. The psalmist, is, uh, David wrote in Psalm 27-8, through 8, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. They collapse and fall. Those who trust in the ch- horses and chariots, they collapse and fall. But we rise and stand upright. What are you going to entrust yourself to? What will you believe? What, what are you going to, to find your hope in? What are you going to seek out peace in? Governments and world powers? Are they going to provide it for you? Can they accomplish this for you? Your personal finances? Oh, I'm, I'm going to finally one day be secure financially? Tell me how that works as the American dollar goes up and down. Your own power, control of circumstances in your life? It, it might be possible that the reason that there's such high levels of anxiety and fear and worry and trust, distrust in the world... It could be chemical. It could be problems physiologically. I, I, I don't doubt that those things exist. Or it could be that we are farther from knowing God than we've ever been. And that the form of religion that used to give us some structure has absolutely crumbled. And we've recognized that not only is no one else able to control it, but we can't either. It's never going to work. How about your forgiveness? Not, not, not meaning I got to find a way to get forgiveness. I'm talking about trying to forgive yourself for all the junk you've done in your life. I sat with a guy just this last week. Oh man, I'm really struggling, just trying to forgive myself. When will you have ever done enough? When will you ever make up for all the wrong you've done? Before we left that conversation, I, I stopped him. I said, you know, I, I listened to you say that. I, I let it go, and, but I can't walk away. The quickest path to being able to forgive yourself is actually just to trust that in Christ you are forgiven. Your forgiveness of yourself matters very little when you recognize that the King of Heaven has completely forgiven you. What will you entrust yourself to? What is your hope? This new covenant? Or your own forgiveness of your own sins? Acceptance and belonging to whoever will have you? Knowing and being, or, or, or being know, knowing and being known by God? Which, which will you find your, your hope in? I just take whoever will take me. Whatever community will have me. Whoever makes me feel comfortable about being me. Well, what happens when you quit being that way? or quit doing that thing, or life changes, and you can't participate in that same activity. Those people are gone. I'll never forget being told by, I told you, my life was a wreck. I mean, I was a wreck, and I, I, I was told directly by a guy. He actually came to the church for a while. He's not here anymore, but I was told by a guy and, uh, when I was still at work in aviation, man, we miss the old Seth. Now, the old Seth that he was talking about was a Seth that was running from God, that knew he was running from God, that was angry and bitter and an infant throwing a fit. But that old Seth would go out on weeknights and get so drunk that he couldn't remember getting home, show up still drunk to work the next day. That old Seth would do anything to just belong. Somewhere to somebody to something. That old Seth was angry and bitter and trying to drown a lot of hurt and pain, much of which I was responsible for. Guilt and shame. Ah, we miss that old Seth. I don't. Not a bit. I am my God's. I belong to Him. And His people. And there is nothing that can change that. Where are you going to find your hope? Where are you going to find that? Just taking whatever will take you, whoever will take you? Belonging. Being accepted and received and known by God. we are you going to find your hope? By putting on enough religion, doubling down on just being good enough? You can't do it. Now, I'm not giving you permission to run out and just do whatever you want to do. We are a people because we trust the Lord. We're called to obey the Lord. And when there's sin in front of us, we're called to repent from that sin. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But that level of repentance doesn't determine the level of his acceptance or your worthiness to be accepted. That is done in Christ. And all of our efforts to live right and just and do the things that he's called us to do are because we've been received, not in order to be received. But what are you going to find your hope in? What are you going to lay down tonight as you close your eyes and entrust yourself to the clear promises of God that have been his promise are something you can attain on your own. Let's pray.